Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Adam Farrer. Now, Adam is a creative non-fiction writer and spoken word performer who's based in Manchester. He's the editor of The Real Story, which is an Arts Council England-funded online publisher and spoken word event series, which is working to nurture creative non-fiction talent in the UK. And his writing can also be found in numerous publications, including Squat Back, BBC Online, This Is Not TV, The Drabble, Flash Flood, and in the short story collection, Flash Nonfiction Funny. And in 2019, he became the inaugural writer-in-residence for Peel Park, Salford. Adam has performed his work at a number of arts and literature festivals, including Sheffield Dock Fest, the Rochdale Literature and Ideas Festival, the Not Quite Light Festival, and the Manchester Literature Festival. He has also run workshops on creative non-fiction writing and spoken word skills for the University of Salford the Press Witch Arts Festival, the Northern Lights Writers' Conference and Victoria Bath's Weekend of Words Festival. Adam was also recently awarded a Developing Your Creative Practice grant by Arts Council England to complete his first book, a memoir in essays titled The Lost Villages of Holderness. Adam, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And it's slightly ironic, as I was reading that introduction, I stumbled over the part where you you teach spoken word skills, so maybe... (laughs) Maybe I need to sign up for one of your courses. <laughs> yeah, there's, 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 an, there's an art to that, I guess. And But I, I stumble all the time. I think everyone who does it stumbles. You're too kind. <laughs> and I suppose just even just in, in reading this, the introduction, and, and obviously you and I are speaking via Skype and, and we've kind of got in touch via one of the other podcasts, guest Stephen Keady, who put me in touch with you. But just even some of the things that you're doing, very much public events, public performances. So I suppose in, in terms of your own work and your own performances, that's quite difficult just now with this lockdown. It is, yeah, because we're having this this grant to write about a certain part of the country. It's actually Holderness is a stretch of the East Yorkshire coast. So the, the funding was to go over to that part of the country and write about the people there and the environment. And since the lockdown, I've had to do a lot because it's because it's where my family came from. So um, I'm having to do a lot of memoir stuff rather than actual real time writing. It stopped me being able to interview people. It's yeah, it's been a little bit disruptive. I suppose and that, and that is the challenge because obviously you would have had an idea of how you saw the book developing, which I'm guessing would have involved a lot of interviews. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, in, I've interviewed fascinating people in that part of the country because it's, it's falling into the sea, like 10 feet a year is disappearing off that coastline. And I think it kind of affects the way that people live. They seem to sort of embrace the precariousness of their existence. And I, I spoke to one lady, Angela, who lives in a chalet on the edge of a crumbling chalet park. And her chalet was literally on the end of the of, of the cliff, probably six feet away from falling off. I just sat in this little little house with her, talking about her life, and she she chooses to live there. Like, she wouldn't live anywhere else. One chalet fell in the sea. She just bought another one and <laughs> moved into that. It's like, there's some very interesting characters, so hopefully the book will capture them. Yeah, and were, were you slightly nervous while you were sitting in that chalet six feet away from the cliff? Terribly, yeah, because the building next door was being condemned. They were pulling all the um, the furniture out of it. There was a whole fence panel that was hanging into the sea. All of Angela's 
pipes and electricity mains were all hanging out the front of the cliff. You could just see them. It's a very precarious way of uh, living, but she loved it. She, used to, she said that her headboard is against the wall that faces the sea. And she said, I like to think that no one in the world has their head closer to the sea than I do. <laughs> and <laughs> she's fully embracing the idea that she just might wake up on the beach one morning. And that's, that's the kind of thing that I find incredibly interesting about that part of the country. Yeah, I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, before too long, you get the chance to perhaps get back out and, and speak to more of these people. Yeah, I'm desperately missing it as well. You, you only realise the things that really matter when you're locked away from them. And that's that coastline and that, that part of the country is really in my heart. And I need to get back to it as soon as possible. Now, in the, the course of the podcast, I think we'll get back to talking about, you know, certainly your your work and, you know, your work as a writer and creative nonfiction, um, certainly with some of the, the choices you've chosen for the podcast. But it's kind of I'm taking you on your, your literary journey of your life, as it were. And if we go back to your childhood for the first of your book choices, and that's your favourite book from childhood. Yeah, that's The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, age 13 and three quarters by Sue Townsend. It's always quite difficult, I think, to go back and choose that that one book from childhood because that's at such an age where you're immersed in, in books. What was it about Adrian Mole that has kept with you? It's the book that I've bought the most in my life. So that was actually the easiest of these choices to make. Like I must have probably had seven copies of that in my lifetime because the original ones that I had were so poorly bound and very cheaply put together, they just fall apart and I just have to buy another one. And I bought, the last copy I bought was a couple of years ago, and my daughter has it now, you know, I've been able to pass that book onto her, because it was it was so important to me. But I think the the thing I found about Adrian Mole was how relatable he was to me. Like he was, you know, there's that, there's a mix of insecurity and arrogance that comes with being an, an adolescence. It's it's kind of awful that I related to him, because he's not, <laughs> he's not the most likable character. But yeah, I, I, I always found myself very bonded to him, and his story so i, I I'm, i've lost count of the times that i've read that book it's really yeah. deeply ingrained for me and at the time when you were an adolescent when you were reading that were you, uh, you had, did you keep a diary yourself or, or did it inspire you to, to keep a diary at all it made me want to i started quite a few because of that but i could i could never commit to it and i know quite a few people who've, who've liked the idea of being a diarist but i've never been able to keep it up more than a couple of weeks because it's a labor in its in itself the kind of writing that i've I've moved into now which is largely from my own experience and it, I now think god I wish I'd done that for this memoir I'm writing a lot of books from my from being about 16 when my family moved to that to Holderness I wish that I'd had some resources to draw on but I'm just dealing with my failing memory instead <laughs> you know it's funny I was list, I was actually reading a, an interview just last week with you know Tracy Thorne who is part of everything but the girl and is, is also a really good writer in her own right now and uh, one of the books where she writes about her teenage years in suburbia and she uses, she kept, she kept a diary throughout that time. So she uses that as source material and it's quite fascinating. And I think obviously she goes back and remembers this awkward teenager and who just thought life in the suburbs was awful. But it's, it's, a really, it's been a really good way for her to then be able to, to go back and tap into that, writing a memoir now. Yeah, I, I, I think... You need the authenticity of that of old diaries, really, because over the years you build up um, an idea of yourself and what your life was like. And it's only when I'd, I'd speak to my family and go, "Oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that?" And they're like, "No, that did not happen at all." <laughs> or you you build up all these false memories. It's one of the perils, I suppose, of, of nonfiction writing. If you've got nothing to prove your actual headspace at the time, then you just join dots that probably shouldn't have been joined. I suppose the other, the other side of it is 
Sometimes I, th- I wonder if your memory of a specific time or event in your life and then other members of your family who experienced the same event, their memories of that would be different. And, and they might tell two different stories about the same thing, but both of them are equally as valid. Well, I, I, I was talking about this with my sister recently because I, I've got a memory of my little brother Ben as a toddler wandering down the hall in our house and banging into a door frame and cracking his head open and blood everywhere and he had to be taken to the hospital and it was all really, really dreadful. And I've got I've got an incredibly clear memory. I can see that happening. And it was talking to my sister a couple of years ago. I found out that that didn't happen at all. And the way that he cracked his head open was that he was bouncing in his little sort of baby bouncer thing in a doorway. And my elder brother pulled the baby bouncer back as far as it would go and would spring it like a catapult. And he was <laughs> doing that, sort of happily playing with my little brother. And then he just went, off at one side and his head smashed into the, the door frame and that's how the injury happened but what i remember is the lie that my elder brother and sister told me to cover up for, <laughs> for the crime but it's it's weird how that's through repeated tellings over the years i, I can't visualize the truth i can only visualize the uh, the fiction and, it, and it's taking your sister up until a couple of years ago to suddenly <laughs> finally admit the lie yeah yeah she hasn't told my mum <laughs> she might find out when she listens to this exactly exactly maybe she should tell her now <laughs> but in terms of uh, adrian mole obviously the, the the one that you chose was the very first book mm. uh, did you end up reading the whole series i think there was another seven in the series i went as far as the cappuccino years i think i didn't keep up with them to the end and they, they kind of lost their charm but i, I really like liked sue townsend as a person and i've read some of her uh, more journalistic articles as well. So I was sort of committed to her rather than that character after a certain point. The the, the Adrian Mole I related to was definitely like the adolescent and teenage version. So uh, once, once once they got out of that realm, I was less interested in, as a, in him as a character. Because I suppose you then, that, that divergence is, as you get older, your own reading uh, habits and your own reading tastes completely change in, in who you are. And it's yeah. just that one period in your life that you can relate to someone. There was a point where I considered I was reading more worthy writers, being a pretentious Adrian Mole kind of, kind of character. <laughs> so I, I need to read some big hitters so I can feel cool about myself or be seen with a certain kind of book. I definitely became that kind of terrible character. Right. Well, we might go on to talk about that in the in your next choice. It's interesting, you know, when you, your next choice of book in the formative years is Lonesome Traveller by Jack Kerouac. And, and that maybe relates in, in some respects, I'm guessing, to, to some of the the way you've developed as a, as a writer, as a performer, given it's a kind of non-fiction series of essays. Yeah, because it, it was, um, I didn't realise it was non-fiction until a few years ago. I just presumed it was yet another of his his um, fiction pieces. But it's it really, it resonated with me at the time when I read it. I was probably 17 or 18 and I was in a, in a band and I was travelling around a lot, mostly to and from rehearsals and thinking about, oh, you know, it'd be great to be on the road and to be actually seeing the world through this like a like a lone wolf in a way as well like because I, I envision myself as a singer songwriter tra- traveling around the world with my guitar like all those kind of very teenage thoughts of what it'd be like to be a cool adult and it, it, he jack carrot really fitted into that that idea of the kind of person i wanted to be but there's there's some there's a beautiful essay in there called let me just grab my copy of it yeah it's called alone on the mountaintop and it's about him working as a fire warden in a forest and these ideas of him sitting in his elevated hut making coffee on a little stove and that was a really romantic image that I wanted to drop myself in into as well I was always looking to escape I think and discover a bit of adventure and that book that really um fell in line with the things that I actually wanted I mean you mentioned 
earlier, you you got to a certain point where you wanted to be seen to to be reading more worthy books and you know obviously names that people would would know. And and I've spoke to a lot of people where on the road is is a book that many people read in their formative years. Partly for that reason, did did you read Lonesome Traveller first, or did you read On the Road as well, or what brought you to that particular Jack Kerouac book? That was the first one that I found in a shop. Like I knew I, I learned who Jack Kerouac was, but I didn't know where to start. And this was in a discount bookshop for two pounds, so I picked it up and gave it gave it a go. And I didn't actually listen because I haven't I haven't read it, but I listened to the audiobook of On the Road last year. And I hated it. Like, really, it annoyed me quite quickly. I think it's a book that I probably would have loved at the same time when I first read Lonesome Traveller. But now it's, yeah, it feels like a bit of a pose. I don't, I don't know how other other people have reacted to it. And I know one of the one of the episodes I listened to, someone wasn't particularly enamoured with it anymore. It seems to be a book of not so much of its time, but of a time in your life. And, and certainly people who have maybe come to it later have maybe more had that reaction that you've had than, than absolutely loving it. Yeah, I think it, it's certainly I don't I don't know if I if I read Lonesome Traveller now fresh for the first time, if I'd be that interested in it. But I've got a, this real affection for what it meant to me at the, at the time. So yeah. it, it sort of is elevated by its, the time it arrived in my hands. Because when I was reading through your introduction and obviously mentioning creative non-fiction is something that you're very much involved in. And what would be, for people who maybe don't know, what, what would be the difference between creative non-fiction and just what people might normally define as, as non-fiction? Broadly, it's non-fiction writing that, that allows you to employ the toolkit of fiction writing. So you can, I suppose... Trying to think of the, the best way to describe it because it's very difficult to get a handle on because there's lots of different genres seem to you could you could define memoir as creative nonfiction you could define autobiographies as creative nonfiction and I feel like someone that the, the first person I think of as a creative nonfiction writer is someone like David Sedaris who would write about his life the the true occurrences of his life but he he will tweak things to make real life slightly more interesting. He'll amplify a conversation. He'll build a scene in the way that he was in fiction writing and just elevate a true life story. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a trick, I guess, of pumping up your, your true stories and making them more readable. Now, you and I have, have never actually met, but actually when people listen to this, they'll think that we've have rehearsed this brilliantly because uh, mentioning David Sedaris, brings us perfectly on to your next choice, which is a book that you would recommend to anyone, and that's Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim by David Sedaris. Yeah, I, I, I think I would recommend it because it, it feels like the gold standard for comic writing for me. Like, I think that's that's the thing that I enjoy most. I like funny writers and people who can also move you. And I think he gets that that balance really well in this, in this book. I think it's maybe the third or fourth collection that he, he um he released but that's the one where he really defined himself i think and really def- hit his stride there's a piece called six to eight black men that's about um his analysis of the dutch christmas story and the way that he analyzes that and pulls it apart and structures the the whole essay i can't think of a more perfect piece of comic writing than that so that is one of 22 essays in this collection it would it it would be the book i recommend based on that story alone yeah. But the, the whole collection, I think, from top to bottom is yeah, as close, close to perfect as you, was, you would find. 
I, again, it's it's one of the things that I say on, on every podcast episode, and, and you know some of the book recommendations are ones that I think I need to go and read because the only collection that I've read of his it was the Santa Land Diaries, which was the Santa Land Diaries essay, and then I think five or six other stories of related to Christmas, and I really loved the book, but it's something that you know I've never then gone back and read anything else of his, but. You know, I just again just reading up on on, on that particular book, uh, it, it makes me want to go in and get it and and, and read it just because I'm not. It's not something that I read a lot of of that kind of creative nonfiction. Yeah, well, he he is a, a brilliant starting point, I think, and also the audio recordings of that because he he really shines as a, as a performer. I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy about him as well, being a, a spoken word performer myself. I like the the rhythm that he and the the delivery that he brings to his pieces. Like they really come alive when he reads them. I think, yeah, I I would rank the recordings of this like two or three percent more than the book because they they just lift it up even further. So he, I went, I saw him do um, a, a short talk and a signing when he put his his diaries out a few years ago, and he was talking about how he'd learned how to write through performance. So he would go and read these journal entries and read his his true stories in front of an audience and that's how he, he would develop like he'd learn immediately what was working as a, in a story based on that immediate feedback that audience feedback and it's it's a way that i've kind of i've stolen that that route really so i try and read as stories as often as possible in front of an audience and there's a line that you've really worked on and you think is incredible you read it there's a flat line in the room and you go oh, okay it's just it's just me then <laughs> and you and so it's a, it's a good way of um developing your writing i think so he, he's someone i look to a lot in terms of a, as close to an icon as I would have. You know, there's two two elements there of the skill in writing. And I'm talking, you know, in terms of, of, of yourself, of being able to put yourself on the page, particularly if you are, you know, writing stories for yourself, of your own story, but then having the nerve to go up and perform in front of people. And as you say, it's kind of any sort of public performance, whether it's music or stand-up or, or spoken word, you have that potential to die on stage. So you have to kind of go over those nerves, I suppose, every time you do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've died a couple of times. I think once you do it, and then you go, oh, okay, well, I'm not dead, really. <laughs> you know, it, it hurt a lot, but I've learned something from it. There was one event that I did a few years ago where I read a story, and it was a true story, but it, it involved someone saying something that was a bit inappropriate. It was just a, it was a dirty story, but it was a terrible, true thing from my university years. And I got stopped halfway through the performance. I was like, no, this is... It's, it's a little bit too near the knuckle. You need to get off stage. And that's the most shame I've ever felt. Like going, oh, I had, to, I had to stand at the back of the venue while the audience scowled at me as I, as I just walked away. But then afterwards, a few people come up, came up to me and said, we need to know how this story ends, like because they, they were compelled enough. So I still was able to claw something from that. It's like, OK, some of the audience cared, even though I was broadly objected to as a, as a terribly filthy man. As you say, that's an experience that you definitely learn from. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I always think well, it's never going to get that bad. You know, short of literally dying on the, on the stage, I don't think it's going to get as bad or as embarrassing as that one time. And then I, I suppose, are you then tempted at some future point, you think that's that's brilliant material for an essay? Exactly. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, it's creative nonfiction is incredibly liberating because it frees you from the burden of writing plots. Because as long as you can spot the arc in what's happening and tie things together properly then it's all there because i'm i consider myself to be a reasonably lazy person so <laughs> that life just hands you stories like my um my mum is a, a burlesque dancer my mum my and my sister are part of a group called the ruby red performers who were on the semi-finals of britain's got talent a few years ago and talking to my mum about that and just living through that experience of them being on tv it's like 
Well, it just handed me an entire story with the development. And there's like, there's like peril because of the light appearing on live TV and the live vote and all of this stuff. It's it's all there. So I didn't have to make anything up. I was just handed a, a complete tale. So it's yeah, it's a it's a real gift. Life and it never stops. Life just never stops keep handing you stories as long as you're paying attention. The only thing I would ask about that is, and I, I read a, a memoir a few years ago by a guy called Michael Tierney, who is a friend of mine. He wrote a book called My, my First Game with My Father, and it was all about the first game of football he went with his dad, and his dad had it suffered a stroke, and, and so was basically housebound. And, it, and Michael was telling the story of how football linked him and then his story of his dad's life. But as I was reading it, I was thinking, I wonder if he's had to maybe speak to his siblings about that and and i wonder when you're writing essays whether you you think how, how are my family going to react to this because obviously as you say you're telling the story but you're mining their lives as much as your own absolutely well when i first started doing it i, I made that mistake of thinking because i've got a very open family that talks about everything so i wrote an essay about my my, my brother died a few years ago in Holderness, in this this area that I'm writing about now. And I wrote an essay about how I feel about it and his funeral and sort of some interactions that we'd had, published it, and it caused a lot of damage. And I had to do a lot of repair work with my family and get them to trust me and understand my motivations for doing it. And because of that really big mistake, I'm incredibly cautious of how I treat my family now. My mum has given me, she's a bit of a show off, so she's given me carte blanche to write whatever I like about her. So I know <laughs> I, I don't need to check with her, but anyone else in my family, I would go to and go, right, you've got, you've got the editing power here. If there's anything you don't like, you can remove that. And I'm always happy to take that out because they're the most important people to me. And the last thing I want to do is hurt them. But yeah, it's, it's uh, occasionally you can lose a really good bit of a story because you have to be a good person. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, ultimately you think, yeah, if, if I press ahead with this, I'm a bad human being. So I have to, have to be, um, yeah, honourable about it. Yeah, some, there was some regret in your voice there as you, you admitted that's what you have to yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> I've lost some good things, but yeah, for the right reason. So I can live with it. And just the last uh, word on David Sedaris collection, when I was, again, just doing some research on it, uh, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, and I, apparently, I think he was once asked where the title came from. He said it didn't, I don't know if it related to any of the essays, he said it, it was a, a dream that his boyfriend had had where he dreamt somebody was reading a book called Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, and I think he thought, that's a great title for a book, <laughs> which, if that's true, that is incredible. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it's not mentioned anywhere in, the, in any of the essays. It's definitely just uh, plucked out of the air. But it's, yeah, and it's, it's not a forgettable title either. I can reach for that when I'm recommending books. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddihy, and my guest, Adam Farrer. And we're on to book four. And from a book you'd recommend to anyone, we're now on to a book that you could not be paid to read again. Yeah, I was I was concerned about this because I don't like to criticise other people's writing. And originally I was going to go for Heart of Darkness, which is a book I hate, like a very short but very painful book to read. But I think that the one that really sticks with me is called um, Hard Landing by Stephen Leather. And it's a thriller. It was, well, it was the first book I bought on Kindle. So it was 99p. And I thought, yeah, I'll give that give that a punt. And it's it's ludicrous. Like, it's really, really ridiculous. It's um, about a guy called Spider, who's um, an elite undercover cop. He infiltrates a drug gang and ends up in prison and trying to ingratiate himself with this gang so he can, you know, bring them down. 
it's it feels to me like it, it was written by a software program that someone had just put in thriller and it automatically done it it's spider is a guy who's like always attractive to women he wins every fight that he's in and i don't, I don't actually don't mind spoiling this book it ends with him parachuting onto an oil tanker off the coast of south america and then winning a fight there it's it's so ludicrous I think if it was a film that starred Jackie Chan, I would love it. I think it was, it was perfect. But that I had to give it reading time. I felt yeah, a bit robbed. Even though it was 99p, I felt stolen time from me. Well, apparently, because I, I, I wasn't aware of the, the book at all. And it's, I think it's the, the first book in, I think there's 17 in the series with this character. Yeah. And also, I think he's, Stephen Leather, has been phenomenally successful uh, selling Kindle books. Yeah, he's he's an incredibly successful author. And, you know, I can't take that away from him. He's won awards. He, he won an award for this book, which I think is stunning that that, that <laughs> happened. But, you know, good for, good for Steve. They good way. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it, it wasn't like any sort of raspberry award. I think it was, is it called the Golden, uh, Golden Dagger or the Steel Dagger? One of those. It was one for the, the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger. That's it. Yeah. And that's it's stunning to me. But he is, he is hugely popular. So it, it could just be me. I feel I don't know if I can, in good conscience, recommend that you read it, but you could you could give it a try just so you understand <laughs> where I'm coming from because I, I it's just so ridiculously unbelievable. It feels like like Jeremy Clarkson would love this book. He's the kind of person that I'd imagine reading it and thinking it was cracking. But <laughs> me, I yeah, I'm I'm I've I've got a friend who was a prison librarian, and Stephen Leather's books are incredibly popular in prison libraries. I think partly because he maybe he's really authentically recreated what it's like to be in a prison. I don't know, but it's yeah, I I can't relate to that at all. Because I'm just thinking that that question I always ask a book you couldn't recommend to anyone. You, I might just uh, retitle it now a book you think Jeremy Clarkson would like. Because <laughs> I think if you saw that in the front cover, you would just go a mile, run away. Well, that's it. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard nope, isn't it? You see, see that on a book, it's like nope. Okay, I definitely know that's not for me. And that would have been helpful if that had said that on um, Amazon. I would probably not have purchased it. But I'm glad I'm through it. It's an experience like dying on stage. It's a thing that I've gone through and I've learned from. <laughs> And I won't make the mistake again. Because it's interesting, when I, again, when I'm just doing some research, and I think in two, back in 2011, uh, Stephen Leather has sold something in the region of half a million ebooks, and he was voted one of the, the 100 most influential people in UK publishing. But then the following year, there was, which I, when I was reading that, I had a vague memory of there was a storm where he was involved with creating phony Twitter accounts in the name of another writer, and then using that to praise his own books, kind of generating his own publicity, and, and you know, ended up the Observer, I think, had done the investigation. So there was a whole lot of furore about it. And for somebody who was, who was selling half a million copies of ebooks seems a strange thing to do this is where you find out that he's bought half a million ebooks himself <laughs> under, under ghost accounts that would ex- that would explain a lot <laughs> but um but yeah you know well done to stephen leather for doing that i wish i could sell half a million ebooks yeah maybe he maybe he bought 499,999 yeah. <laughs> was, Jeremy uh... Clarkson bought the other one. <laughs> yeah just... poor old me <laughs> yeah just before we move on you mentioned because you, you were you'd a you were debating between Hard Landing and then Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which obviously maybe people might not have read that, but a lot of people know that it was the basis of the inspiration for Apocalypse Now, the film. But what was it you didn't like about that book? I think very early on, it annoyed me because I don't, I don't know if, uh, if your memory is really good of the, of the, uh, the text, but I was double checking this yesterday ahead of the podcast. 
and looked at the um, PDF of the text. Because what I remember the first time I read it was that he described the weather as brooding gloom over and over again on the first page. And six times on the first two pages, he describes the same thing, like the haze in the, in the air by the, by the water as brooding gloom. And I, f- I remember finding that offensive, like, God, how lazy. Like, I'm lazy, but I'm not, not so lazy. I used the same description over and over again, hoping that the reader would forget that I'd already used it. And I found it, that it just, it felt like a real slog. Like some, there's also, uh, have you read The Tin Drum? Yes. I found that to be a slog as well. Because t- The Tin Drum is reasonably, it's a big, big old book. Yeah, uh, I actually loved it. The thing that's stuck in my head about that and why I don't hate it is because when they go eel fishing with a horse's head, I like that as a visual. So that was a that was a positive thing I took took from it. But Heart of Darkness, yeah, it just it bored me from beginning to end. I like Apocalypse Now, and I like that something good was drawn from it. So there are some positives that stop me from damning it completely. But I don't see that there's any positives about Hard Landing by Stephen Mather. <laughs> so, and it, it, the the only reason that I didn't throw it out of my window after reading it was that it was on my Kindle. <laughs> Otherwise, that would have happened. Is it still on your Kindle? It is, yeah. I don't, th- I don't know if you can. Can you delete books yeah, from Kindle? I, th- I think you can go on your account and I'm sure you can delete them. I guess that's that's my equivalent of a diary. There's all the, all the bad decisions I've made in my life are sitting in my uh, my Kindle purchases. I should keep them. That's a warning. Because I, I was going to ask you earlier on, but now that you've brought obviously Kindle up, in terms of I've asked people before of how they, they read, whether they prefer physical books, whether ebooks. But you've, you'd mentioned a couple of times as well audio books. Um, in terms of you'd you'd listen to on the road, but then also the David Sedaris. And do you have any preference, or do you, is it just a kind of case of mix and match? Um, yeah, it's a real mix and match thing. Like there are there are some books that um. Like on the road, I, I knew that I would not find the time to sit down and read it. So I, that that was an instinctive audio um, purchase. And, I, and I, I always, if Sedaris puts out a book, I will buy the physical copy and I'll read that. And then I will listen to the audio books. I want to have the, the two different versions of it. But yeah, I, I tend to mix. I buy, like most people, I buy far too many books. And there's an enormous stack beside my bed. Is that such a thing? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's something that I could be shamed for, but I still buy them. You know, I bought three books this morning and there's, there are there are literally 20 books on the side of my bed. It's like, oh, I can always have more because they're just, exactly. they're beautiful things. They're furniture, they're decoration, they're enriching. There's so many reasons why you should just carry on buying them. So Exactly. I, I'm, I'm very much of the, the, the same opinion as, as you that I, I think sometimes you do buy books because they do look absolutely, they just look stunning. What, one book actually, I don't know if you've read it, it came out last year. It was called The Secret Life of Books and Why They Mean More Than Words by Tom Moe. I think he's a, a university professor in Edinburgh. And it is the whole it's the story of the creation and the evolution of books through the centuries and what it's meant to people to civilizations to cultures and as a, as a book lover it, it's a brilliant book and a brilliant brilliant celebration of the, that physical product oh great the, the secret life of books did you say yeah I'll write this down ace yeah that'll be another after this conversation i'll, <laughs> I'll be straight onto amazon that's, <laughs> it's like yeah I'm, i've never had a drug addiction but i think that's the closest that i'm going to get and i'm going to say i, I mean i could be contradicted here it's probably not the sort of book that jeremy clarkson would read so you're probably you certainly will enjoy it for that even reason. more encouraged wonderful yeah. we are on to uh, the fifth and final question and that is either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading yeah, and it's the it's the the one I'm currently reading. It's the the Gathering Tide by Karen Lloyd, and um, it's a memoir about Morecambe Bay. Because um, the re- the reason I bought it is because I 
So recently we had Storm Dennis that was just yeah. destroying the uh, the country, and we were told to uh, to stay in our homes. And my friend and I had had uh, arranged to take a trip to Morecambe Bay that weekend. So it's like, oh, it's just a bit of rain. It'll be fine. We'll, we'll, we'll go and do it anyway. And we got onto the motorway and the traffic slowed to about five miles an hour and there was zero visibility. And I was like, I'm I'm going to kill us. Like, we're actually going to die on this this journey. And then we got to Morecambe, had this wonderful day. The weather was perfect. It was all kind of beautiful. And then because we survived that, we had such a lovely time, I... I asked my friend out and she's now my girlfriend. You know, it's the, the journey that cemented our relationship because we'd gone through something very dangerous together and had a great time. And afterwards, I was like, God, I really liked that day and I liked the experience we had. So I uh, was looking for books about Morecambe and that was the first one I came across. And it really tied in with my own book as well. But it's a memoir about living by the coast because she talks about her memories of Morecambe and the various things that have happened, like the um, the cockle pickers who drowned. There's a, a nuclear power station just down further down the coast, so that's quite interesting. So, it, I, yeah, I'm looking at this as um, a bit of a guide for my own work, really. When I saw, for example, that it was, I think it's Saraband Books that publish it, mm. then I think they're a really good independent publisher so i think there's a kind of real quality control in what they do so right away although i haven't obviously i've not read the book i'm thinking that is going to be a good read because i know they take real care with with everything that they do but obviously you mentioned that it was your experience in Morecambe and, and, and what came out of that that brought you to, to the book but again once you stumbled upon that because of what you are doing yourself in terms of your writing did that just make it more appealing yeah it felt like fate but i'd come across this book and actually the karen submitted something to the real story around the same time that I bought the book. Uh, it was a tremendous piece of nature writing about the natural reintroduction of wolves into Europe and how there are there are now wolves in the Netherlands, like just they're wandering around these these towns and wandering along the coastline. It's kind of and again that that sort of thing tied in with some of the, the stories that I've been writing about the coastline that I'm writing about, which sort of faces the Netherlands. So it's quite her writing seems to dovetail with mine quite neatly. She's been writing about wolves, and I've been writing about as a werewolf that has apparently been mutilating animals at a, pump, a puffin sanctuary on the whole of this coast. And I've been interviewing various sort of UFO truthers and people who believe that it's this this werewolf has arrived from a parallel universe to pull these sheep apart. It's it's <laughs> it's a very strange. I, I don't believe this, <laughs> but, but I find it to be a very compelling story, and that it's a weird story that people have built around the uh, around the region. So she hasn't written about werewolves, but there's, there seems to be some parallel between her wolf writing on the coast and my werewolf writing on the coast. It's a reader as well, and obviously as, a, as someone who writes creative non-fiction, is it quite nice as well when you then stumble upon a new book by a new writer and you just discover that kind of talent that's within those pages? As, as the editor of The Real Story, I get so many amazing pieces of creative non-fiction writing every day. So I'm always, like my inbox is a repository of all these amazing, these different angles that people have taken to approach non-fiction writing. Because there's no set way to do it, really. Some people are experimental and some people are, um, they tell these very sort of linear tales about their stories. Some people will tell tell their stories in, in a poetry form. So I'm very excited always by finding the ways that people approach this kind of writing. 
because another writer that's come up a few times in the podcast with various guests, it's a, a Scottish writer called Kathleen Jamie, who's, I think she's a poet first and foremost, but she's, I think she's written a couple of collections of essays and it's very much in that kind of same vein of, of nature writing and two or three people that I've spoke about are uh, really rave about the, the kind of perceptive way she looks at the world and looks at things and looks at people and places. And again, that might be another one just to, to look out for. Well, the poets I found tend to be the most natural creative nonfiction writers. We we published a piece by a poet called Lenny Sanders. Um, she's also an, a really wonderful spoken word performer. But the the lyrical writing and the attention to detail it's it's in, in, incredible. The they they're already calibrated to view the world in this very particular detailed way. And when they expand upon that into a, a long form essay. Yeah, it's, it particularly does something to me. Her, her writing is beautiful. And when she submitted, we often, as a team of us that edit people's work, and she was someone that we just didn't need to touch. She'd done it all so completely naturally. It was her first piece of essay writing, but for years and years of poetry experience, it was all there. It was all perfect. That's so rare for, for any writer to be that perfect, you know? Yeah, yeah, because well, she's, um, I think her, her muscles, <laughs> her writing muscles are so well-tuned that, yeah, it was completely natural for her. So I've been encouraging her to write more, but I think she's retreated back into poetry because it's, it's, there's an emotional burden with creative nonfiction. Like if you're digging into something that's really personal, and normally this is the, the first piece of creative nonfiction people people write is generally about the most challenging thing that's ever happened to them so we we get a lot of submissions from people who are, have woken up in hospital from a, a horrendous operation or someone's died it's all like always the worst stuff and some people do really once they write a piece of creative nonfiction, never want to do it again so i'm not going to push her too much but i think she should write more yeah. cause she's because she's incredible is that one of the i'm guessing that that is one of the great joys as somebody who who does love creative non-fiction when you're certainly the editor of the real story that as you say people are sending you some just some beautiful pieces of, of writing that you get to to see firsthand and and you know you're almost the first person to read it yeah and it, and it feels like kind of it's kind of an honor really to have that stuff because people that with a real a true story they're giving you their whole heart you know it's not something they've just made up this is like okay this is a really personal thing that happens that has happened to me and i'm trusting you with it and some sometimes people people's true stories should just remain as diary entries because they're not they're not the writers that they would need to be to re to like fully realize their story but i always reply to those people and constructive and thank them for sending it to us because it's it's a big thing to give your truth to someone else and when I was reading, obviously, the introduction to what you do, and the last thing I'd mentioned was you had received a grant from Arts Council England to complete this, the, your first book. And mm. obviously, we spoke about how the, you know, the, the impact of the lockdown just now, but do you have a schedule in terms of when you'd like to, to complete the book? Or is that now up in the air? Or are you still just working on it? It's Yeah, it's been pushed back because I'm working with the novelist Jen Ashworth and I'm doing these monthly uh, sessions where I send her a, an essay and we Skype and we discuss how the book is progressing. And we probably got about 80% through it. And I was just writing a piece about the economy in this town called Withensea where my family uh, all live. And it's it's already on a knife edge because it's reliant on dwindling tourism. And now with the lockdown, that knife has been completely taken away and I don't really know how the town is going to survive. So I, I need to take some time to look at that properly and I won't be able to do it until the lockdown has passed, whenever that will be. So I'll give myself a few more months. But ideally, I was, I was looking to finish it by August and that doesn't seem like that's going to happen now. 
do you, do you have other projects on the go at the same time or are you just focused solely on that? Well, I've got the writer-in-residence for Peel Park and Salford. I've got a whole load of essays to write for that as well because I covered a, a year in the life of, of that park and I was given access to the park keeper's diaries from 100 years ago and there's all these mad little stories. Like There used to be a natural history museum in Salford and it closed sometime in the 1930s, I think. They laid off a load of staff and uh, in protest, lots of the staff stole the exhibits. So they were just walking home with stuffed tigers and bears and ostriches. <laughs> and I started speculating on the idea that they're somewhere in Salford. People are going to do it. So they're, they're, their relatives will die of, uh, of old age. And they go and clear the house out and find you know, a gorilla in the loft <laughs> without explanation. So there's there's lots of things to, to dig into with that as well. So I've got a whole year of research around that park, which my residency's finished in, in March, the, the end of winter. So... I've, yeah, I've I've never I'm never running out of things to to write about. And then my mum calls me up and tells me another story about her dance class or <laughs> something she's doing. And there's another story, so it just never stops. And in terms of your reading, obviously we were speaking about the Gathering Tide and and then also the the ever expanding list of books at the side of your bed. And do you do you know what you're going to be reading next, or is it, as again is it just something that once you finish that book, you'll just see where the mood takes you? Yeah, well, there's a book by Ross Gay called The Book of Delights, which is one that I've been dipping into a lot because it's, it contains, he calls them essayettes. They're like essays that are about 100, 150 words. So that's very, you can dip into it very easily. And he's a poet, again, writing really beautifully and observed, sort of perfectly manicured short stories. So that's one that I will dip in and out of. I'm also reading Notes to Self by Emily Pine, which is what I started and thought, no, I need to finish The Gathering Tide <laughs> before I read that. But that's that's been highly recommended as well. Uh, that's where I'll be jumping next. Sadly, uh, Adam, we've just about come to the end of the podcast. It's been really good talking to you. If anybody wants to go over any of Adam's book choices, you go onto my website, www.paulcuddehy.com, and there's a page for each of the guests in the podcast where I just list all the, the book choices and, and the book recommendations and the book that only Jeremy Clarkson would read as well, which is now <laughs> I think, what we are, we are going to call that category. But as I say, it's been it's been really good talking to you, Adam, and really look forward to when your your book, The Lost Villages of Holderness, does come out. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at Read All About Twenty, on Instagram at Read All About It podcast, or you can send an email to Read All About It at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.